Two decades ago, the Boston Public Schools were celebrated by the Broad Foundation as one of the nation's finest. Between 1995 and 2006, they enjoyed the longtime steady leadership of Robert Pezant, who served under an appointed school board known for its distinction and its commitment to the schools and the community of Boston. Student performance steadily improved year after year on the National Assessment of Student Progress, the nation's report card. Today, the Boston Public Schools are reeling. Superintendent Pezan took a professorship at Harvard University back in 2006, and since then, Boston has had six superintendents for an average of less than three years apiece. Student performance on the NAEP, the National Assessment, has declined in fourth grade math, fourth grade reading, uh, eighth grade math, and only in eighth grade reading have scores remained the same, decline across the board otherwise. Well, what's happened? With the pandemic, the issues become even more severe. And that's all happening even at a time when teacher salaries have climbed to an average in excess of $100,000 a year, and school expenditures exceed the national average by a wide margin. It's now over $23,000 annually. Well, Superintendent Brenda Caselius has handed in her resignation just two and a half years after she took the job. And now the city and the school board are looking for a new replacement. So I'm very pleased to have with me today on the Education Exchange, uh, Kara Kandel of the Pioneer Institute, a senior fellow at the uh, Pioneer Institute, uh, a Boston think tank. Uh, and, and she has written a report that is soon to be released that uh, looks at this picture, what has happened in Boston. So. Kara, thanks for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So I don't want to scoop your own, your report, <laughs> but uh, can you give me the grade that you would give the departing superintendent, Brenda Caselius? Yeah, well, I, I'm, I can scoop my own report. That's okay. I, I mean, it's... It's, uh, first of all, let me say, both as a teacher and as a former professor, I was probably too soft of a grader. <laughs> but <laughs> I think that, you know, Superintendent Caselius, first of all, she's received credit, as does any superintendent that lasted this long during a pandemic. And I think it's also very, very important to recognize that the problems with BPS, as you alluded to, were only highlighted and exacerbated by the pandemic, they really have existed long, long before. So in terms of her, you know, she probably gets, I would say, uh, a B plus for effort in that I heard, and this is not included in the report, but just in speaking to folks in the community, particularly educators and school leaders, especially when she first landed pre-pandemic, there was, I think, a, a sense that she was trying to do something different and very specifically that she was trying to listen to and work closely with on the ground stakeholders. Unfortunately, and we will never know if this would have been any different had the school closures of 2020 not, not occurred. Um, unfortunately, you know, she wasn't able to move what I have come to view as this sort of intractable beast that is the Boston public schools 
you can call it bureaucracy, but it, it seems more than that. It's almost like um, the thing that is Boston Public Schools is, is a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts, right? You've got very well-intentioned, often highly um, capable professionals in that system, but they just can't seem to come up with a way of getting the job done that really moves achievement for kids and serves students and families. So that is a long way of saying that B plus for effort, but unfortunately, probably a C or a D for actually making any meaningful change. Well, that's that's the problem a lot of superintendents uh, are encountering around the country. I don't think Boston is uh, unusual in that regard, but um, but what's unusual is that Boston, you know, t- 20 years ago looked unusual, like it was really a coherent system. But in the last couple of decades, it seems to have been sliding away from that. And and I don't want to put it all in the current superintendent, but it's, the succession of superintendents shows that one after another was unable to. to what do you think could account for that? Oh, I mean, it's just astounding. I think that, what do I think accounts for the huge amount of leadership churn, which is one of the things that, you know, we focus on in this report. You know, Dr. Peterson, it's sort of like, <laughs> it's like looking at a at a Monet, like from far away, <laughs> it looks like BPS by some accounts is, is trying to do all of the right things. They've got some of the right things in place, right? Like a weighted student funding should be a good way to do things. Um, You know, a focus on curriculum instruction, or we're going to look at the lowest performing schools. We're going to give them more resources, these things. But then when you get really up close, what you realize is that so much goes wrong in implementation and, or just doesn't happen, just isn't actually happening in implementation. It's almost as if what happens at the central office and superintendents have been somehow unable to bridge this gap, um, the good intentions, the good ideas, to some extent, the, the good people of the central office are not able to translate their policies, the practices that will make a difference down to the school level. And you hear this from school leaders as well, that there's just this disconnection between what is, what is quite frankly, a, a very large central office supporting many, many adults, right? In, in jobs that are supposed to be supporting school leaders and it never quite happens. And I think that superintendents, whether it's in part because they spend a lot of their time dealing with special interest groups, they spend a lot of time at the collective bargaining table, um, they spend a lot of time worrying about the problems of adults are never able to, to never able to sort of wrap their arms around what it's going to take to translate sound policies into practice at the local level, but then also hold multiple stakeholders accountable. And that's a really big point, I think. Hold stakeholders accountable for the sound implementation of policies that look really good on paper. Well, you know, the uh, Paysant... Um introduced this idea of pilot schools and pilot schools were supposed to be exempt from all the usual regulations and provide a lot of flexibility at the local level. Uh, But we've never seen those pilot schools take off and and show, you know, this is the way to do it. What happened to the pilot schools? I think quite frankly, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to a a man that I often quote as my good, my mentor, my great friend, Charlie Glenn, who always says, you know, like, Autonomy is great, but you need to have accountability as a counterbalance. 
And one of the things that's very clear in BPS, in the pilot schools and, in, and even in transformation schools, I mean, the lowest performing 10% of schools, which by the way, 16,000 kids in BPS are attending the lowest performing 10% of schools. Um, that's, that's just staggering when you think about it. But the pilot schools and other schools have been given certain amounts of autonomies and different autonomies, by the way. So one pilot school might not necessarily have chosen to take advantage of the same autonomies as the next, but then there's nobody checking up and saying, as we would, for example, in our charter school model, which as a former charter school, charter board chair who helped to close one school in a network, I can tell you, I think works. Um, there's no follow-up to say, okay, are you taking advantage of your autonomies in a way that actually helps students succeed? And absent that accountability for outcomes, um, autonomy is, is simply unchecked and not doing anything good for kids. And by, I think according to the state's evaluation of BPS and to my read of what's going on in BPS, that is the huge problem unchecked autonomy. Well, let's talk about that state report. The state of Massachusetts spent a considerable amount of time taking an in-depth look at the Boston public school system, and they prepared a report that was extraordinarily critical. So what, were you, what do you see as the key points in that report? Yeah, I mean, this report is, first of all, it, it's incredibly thorough. And as you say, it's, it's critical in the paper, I call it damning, but it is thorough. I mean, they made observations to almost a thousand classrooms. It's, it's very thorough report, but it focuses, and I focus in my, in my paper on some key themes, um, and that is curriculum and instruction and finance and enrollment. Those are, those are three key themes. There are certainly others included. Um, leadership, we've talked about, it also focuses on that. And the big theme with leadership is of course this churn. There's nobody steering the ship consistently. And in consistency, I think if we look at Superintendent Paisant's time, you know, he was a, a great superintendent, but he also provided really consistent leadership for, uh, for a good amount of time that made a difference in that district. When we look at the curriculum and instructional failures, this, I think the report goes into great detail talking about this is where that unchecked autonomy really matters. So for example, if you're saying to schools that aren't performing well with kids, okay, you know, one of the things we want you to do is use this reading curriculum that's really, you know, proven based on the science of reading to help kids um, learn to read before third grade, which we understand is critical, but then nobody's ever checking up to make sure that that curriculum is actually being used or implemented effectively, right? And, and we're only relying on the state test as a check to figure out if kids are doing okay. Well, we're finding out far too late that kids in fact aren't reading. It points to, the report points to, for example, the fact that formative assessments are optional. They're not being used consistently. And when they are used, especially at the high school level, by the way, I would point out this is really important. When formative assessments are used, teachers often struggle to actually get the results of those formative assessments. They're housed on multiple platforms. I mean, in a place where we have such advanced technology, nobody's helping the Boston public schools figure out how to, how to help teachers easily and parents, I would add, access student results. So that's, that's one pillar. Um, the other thing it, we should, we must talk about, I think, is is finance, right? So I mentioned that BPS, for example, has a weighted student funding model. Well, 
yeah, I think that at the outset, many of us would agree that 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 is a good thing. So let's talk about that. What is a weighted student funding model? Sure. So weighted student funding is a model that accounts for groups of students and the different needs they might have. So it will for, for example, schools with concentrations of socioeconomically disadvantaged students, schools with concentrations of English language learners, those schools will get a little bit more money for curriculum and instruction. And on the face of it, we would say that that's a good thing. But what the report points out is that, yes, that's happening in Boston. And they've even added something called the Opportunity Index, which is looking to concentrate even more money in those schools. Um, but it's also not accounting coherently enough for kids with diverse needs. It's not, it's, it's focused on groups. It's not necessarily trickling down to help individual students. And I think that it's suffice it to say, the report argues that the weighted student funding model doesn't focus precisely enough on the needs of very- Well, does it apply to personnel? Um, do, if you have a, a very experienced teacher who's getting a salary of $140,000 a year and somebody else has a beginning teacher that's making, you know, half that, maybe not quite half that, but a lot less. Do you get more teachers if you have inexperienced teachers? Does a teacher count the same no matter how much the salary is? No. No, and that's common, as you know, across school districts. So, yeah, it's it's certainly there are some of the lowest performing schools in BPS. Um, are populated with lesser teachers with lesser experience. And that's a huge fundamental problem. And it's also, it's a problem, as I say, you know, the system's not just dealing with um, <laughs> a lack of coherence, like people who can't sort of uh, coordinate. It's also special interest groups. So, you know, the process of collective bargaining <laughs> has a lot to say about how teachers are distributed and how teachers get to choose in school. So, so why school, don't they take that on? You have a school board, you have a superintendent, everybody knows that the uh, new novice teacher still struggling, learning how to you know, figure it out is being assigned disproportionately to the schools where the senior teachers don't want to teach, which yeah. is the very place where they're most needed. So, and the, this is written into collective bargaining agreements across the country. I admit that taking it on is, 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 is difficult, but the teachers are receiving a very substantial salary in Boston. Why doesn't the school board say, all right, if we're going to give you this salary, we gotta have something uh, back on, on teacher assignments? That's a question I would love to put to the school board. Unfortunately, I think what we've seen from the, from the school committee just over time is instead of a close scrutiny of how resources, including human capital, are allocated, right, is simply the the sense that we should throw yet more money at the problem. And as you noted at the outset, Boston already has one of the highest per pupil um, rates of spending in, in the country. So I think that in, in school leaders in the report express great frustration with this, right? That it's very difficult for them. Not only they can, they maybe have some flexibilities to hire the teachers that they want, but if you can't dismiss the ineffective teachers, or if you can't dismiss less experienced teachers that for whatever reason you're settled with, you can only have so many staff in a building. And so that is one part of the problem that is built into collective bargaining agreements. Well, it is the salaries that you pay your staff that consumes the lion's share of the budget. You're, you're talking right. about over half the budget 
well over half the budget is going to salaries. The amounts that you spend on, you know, supplies and, and technology and so forth, you know, it's not in, you know, it's significant, but it is, you, you're not going to, weighted student formula is not going to really address the inequities in the system if you can't use it to mobilize the best per- personnel where, there, where that personnel is most needed. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think it's also important to know that another, you know, area that the report hits hard is simply that in Boston, now we can, I hope, talk about enrollment, but one of the things that's happening is in schools that have been losing enrollment for, for years, the system is throwing money at the problem of schools that um, need to be propped up not only with using their budgets, but with additional funds called soft landing funding that the district is throwing at these under-enrolled schools, simply to do things like keep the lights on when these schools are operating at, in some cases, you know, one third of the capacity that they could be. So you've no efficiency of scale, so to speak. In some. So of do you want to elaborate on that? I, I know the enrollment, dec- there's a substantial enrollment decline across the board, especially in light of the pandemic. Is it down 10% from where it was? Recently? Yeah, according to the most recent numbers between 2019, and I believe it's between 2019, and, and today, oh, enrollment is down 10%. And that's, that's enormous. And I think that people's inclination is to say, oh, well, you know, the pandemic caused people to move or do X, Y, and Z. The fact of the matter is that that is 10% is, is an absolutely astounding number. And enrollment in BPS was declining long before the pandemic, we were seeing parents leave. I would say that, um, you know, it's also when you think about um, the community of Boston and the extent to which people may or may not have other educational options, um, this indicates, at least to me, Uh, Some of what we've seen nationwide is that a lot of parents are saying, I would actually rather keep my kids home (laughs) or find find some other, you know, it's not like parents are suddenly saying, oh, I'm going to enroll my kids in private school. Um, It's a lot of parents are making the choice that it's actually better for them in some cases to be homeschooled than to go to BPS. And I think that that was a part of the pandemic, just utter dissatisfaction with the education that students were receiving. Well, I think there's a lot of factors involved there, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the suburbs are attracting families with with students because you have some pretty good schools in the surrounding area. You you have the Catholic schools seem to have stopped the erosion, and they their enrollments are increasing. Um, the um, and as you say, the homeschooling, um, and then may, maybe it's just parents aren't sending their kids to school. For preschool or kindergarten, is that where the enrollment decline is concentrated? That could be, yeah, that could be part of it. We have seen enrollment declines with little kids, but we've seen enrollment declines in high schools as well. Um, you know, and, and, and that goes to as well. I mean, there's just recent news out from the Boston Globe that, you know, BPS has been underreporting actual its graduation rates and dropout rates. And so that's, you know, we're losing kids at all areas of the system. And I don't think we can point to just one. How, um, how can they not report their dropout rates? What do they do? It's well, they've inflated graduation rates is what, um, what it's, what the globe is reporting. And it's, I think we will learn more in the coming weeks as to what the numbers really say, but, you know, in a time when graduation rates were, um, uh, superintendent Caselius was, out kind of saying, look, graduation rates have improved and they weren't really that great 
<laughs> when she was heralding such improvement um, to, to come to find out that the numbers have been inflated for whatever reason, because they're saying that, you know, they're not capturing kids who moved or they're capturing kids who moved too often, like whatever it is, as we will come to find out in the coming weeks, um, the numbers are, are not right. So the state, the state has written an excellent report. Oftentimes, a state will take over a district that seems dysfunctional. Mm. They've done it. The state of Massachusetts has done that with, with Lawrence and with Chelsea. Why aren't they taking on the responsibility for shaking this system when it's so obvious that the school board can't do it itself? Yeah. So this is, I think, one of the most confounding things about um, the past four years. I think, quite frankly that when sitting Commissioner Jeff Riley uh, took the position, and as, as you know, he was the receiver in Lawrence, and that is one of the few models in the literature on receivership that really gets high praise. Um, I think a lot of people thought there would be almost an immediate move to do something to, to take over BPS. And when in March, 2020, right before the pandemic, on a Friday, I would add, the, um, the state's review of the district was released. It was almost simultaneous with this memorandum of understanding about what was going to happen in BPS. And I have to say, as just a, as a taxpayer, I, I found the memorandum of understanding to be pretty vague and felt pretty toothless, right? It was sort of like, wasn't what a lot of us were looking for. Um, so what was in it? What was in it? Can you be more specific? Sure. The memorandum of understanding looks at it says we're going to hold BPS accountable, for example, for student growth in what they call transformation schools, that 10% of lowest performing schools in the district, but growth isn't really specified. They wanted the adoption of MassCore, which are state approved college prep classes throughout the district. They wanted to see a decrease in chronic absenteeism and in the number of unrepresented students in, a, in AP classes, for example. And of course, they call out sort of in vague terms, improvements to special education services, improvements in transportation. So the thing about these recommendations is it outlines sort of these expectations for BPS in rather vague terms, student growth, well, how much, by when? You know, it's a three-year memorandum of, of understanding, but how are we actually going to measure success here? And then it, it delineates ways in which the state will support BPS. For example, it moved a cohort of sort of mm, not the lowest performing schools, but not great performing schools into something called the Kaleidoscope Network for Deeper Learning, and the state is running this network and providing supports. But the, it's, it's a very, um, it doesn't seem in line with the critiques in the report. So what are we going to do about actually holding schools accountable for using the curricula that we know we're going to move reading scores? What are we going to do, to your point, about staffing? What are we going to do about schools that require extra money because enrollment is so low, um, the school should have been closed years ago. Um, the memorandum of understanding really leaves us hanging there. And again, I think it's because there were a lot of stakeholders to negotiate with. And to the topic of receivership, I think the hope here is that um, there's an opening, right? I think that a lot of us think that now there is an opening for receivership. Now, receivership takes a nod from governor. Receivership would, to some extent, take the buy-in of the mayor, right? We need to get some stakeholders on board. So I can't, I don't have enough behind-the-scenes knowledge to know why it haven't, hasn't happened yet. We have at least one um, State Board of Education board member asking 
really important questions on this, at least one publicly. Um, and I think that, you know, with uh, a new mayor, with Governor Baker not running for reelection, we could see an opening. Um, it would require the state to initiate yet another review of BPS. And to be clear, I don't think that, I don't argue in the report that receivership is going to be a magic bullet, nor do I think anybody thinks that uh, BPS should be a copy and paste of Lawrence. They are very different communities. BPS is a huge district. Um, but I think that we do have the know-how here in Massachusetts, especially with the sitting commissioner, um, as to how to start to sort of peel back the layers and, and make some real important changes in the system, starting with, I would hope, curriculum and instruction. Well, what's your assessment of uh, Boston's new mayor? Uh, she didn't run on a campaign no. of school reform, uh, but now she's faced with appointing a new superintendent. Yep. Uh, she probably is the decisive figure on the scene at this moment. The, this, the gubernatorial position is up for grabs right now. We can't expect much from there. So the mayor has an opportunity to move in one direction or another. What do you think the mayor wants to do? I wish I knew. I wish she was here so I could I could ask her myself. I will say this: when she was elected, um, I personally was did not feel hopeful <laughs> that this was going to be somebody who was really going to make a move for BPS. But watching her now, I do feel a little bit more hopeful that she's open to learning more. That she's open to, and especially I think, and I think this is key. I think if we look at the drastic enrollment declines and what enrollment, what declines in enrollment mean, not only for just the stability of the system and for the kids who are in the system, and I believe her own kids are in the system, um, but what it says, what, what the message that parents are sending to the mayor, the message that parents are sending to the school committee, I think that she's a very smart person <laughs> and she has to be thinking, okay, uh, the status quo can't be acceptable. So I'm watching closely, but I, I wish I had more for you than that. I do not. Yeah, no, I think everybody is, is, uh, is watching uh, closely. And uh, well, what have I missed? Tell, uh, there's, you have so much in your report. What do you think um, our listeners should also know about this current situation? I think that what our listeners, what I really hope the takeaway is um, for just, you know, folks who don't study education for a living or, or think about education policy every single day, like you and I do, is that the, the problems in BPS today, as I said at the outset, uh, predate the pandemic. They really are not, you know, I think it's, I think the pandemic has given a lot of stakeholders cover to say, you can't hold us accountable. You can't hold us accountable because look what's happened. You can't hold us accountable because we, there are teacher shortages, et cetera, et cetera. At the end of the day, um, all of these things are true. A lot of these things were true pre-pandemic. They might be a little bit worse now, especially in terms of teacher exodus. Um, but the fact of the matter is, this is a system that has now absolutely failed generations of students, right? 35% of kids before the pandemic, 35% of students in BPS were reading on grade level, according to 
our state test, which by the way, is one of the most rigorous, but is not meant to be um, a measure of, of the utmost rigor, right? It's a, it's a pretty basic measure of what kids can do. Um, and that is, that's tragic. That is unacceptable. And we here in the Bay State really pride ourselves on, oh, we have great NAEP scores. We always love to say we, I'm a Midwesterner um, by birth. So I say, you know, when I moved to Boston, I thought, wow, these people love to pat themselves on the back. And the fact of the matter is we have this, as Carrie Rodriguez says, you know, number one for some, we have this complex that says, well, no, we're all doing okay. There's nothing to see here. Look at BPS, BPS. If you, if you take the district as a whole, it educates more than most of the districts in the state put together. We are failing kids. And so it happened before the pandemic. It continues to get worse. I don't see it getting any better. And the status quo is absolutely not going to fix it, nor is this current memorandum of understanding, which I think some stakeholders, including the teachers unions, will move to wash their hands of as soon as possible. And well, that to me would be a tragedy. Okay, but there is a bright spot. And the bright spot is the charter sector, which in Boston mm. is, there's a lot of charter schools out there that are doing very well. There, there are lots of families that would love to get their student. Yeah, well, let's open school. it up. <laughs> so maybe the solution is to just, um, if you're interested in school reform, you're interested in building the charter sector. Well, I would say two things to that. And as I said, I, I'm a former charter school um, board chair, and uh, it was a charter school that dealt with its own enrollment problems. It was a we had to close one of the schools in our network. And it was a very, very difficult thing to do. So I feel for the folks of Boston that have to contemplate these things. But I think, yes, we need to take a hard look at how many kids are in charter school wait lists. And the legislature needs to absolutely, you know, we failed to lift the cap in 2016. But my goodness, if, if ever there was a time for more high quality seats, it is absolutely now. But the other thing is, is what lessons can we learn about how charters are authorized? Because the fact of the matter is, um, when the charter school that I shared the board of was having enrollment problems, was having financial problems, was not helping kids uh, achieve, it was closed, right? And if we hadn't have made the choice to do it, the state certainly would have, and they should have. So that I think is the most important thing. How is it that this district is allowed to persist in consistently failing students again and again and again and again? And, and we look the other way. It's to me, that's, it's, it violates the constitutional rights of the kids and families in BPS. Well, thank you, Cara, for uh, shedding light on this situation as dismal as it is. But I think our listeners and uh, the people of Boston need to know the story. So thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. I have been speaking with Kara Kandel, Senior Fellow at the Pioneer Institute. Pioneer is about to release a new analysis of the Boston public school system written by Kara Kandel. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.